Chapter 11 of The Egregious English by T. W. H. Crossland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 13 Poets. It may be set down as an axiom that a nation which is in the proper enjoyment of all its faculties, which is healthy, wealthy, wise, and properly conditioned, must be producing a certain amount of poetry. From the beginning, this has been so. It will be so to the end. When England was at her highest, when the best in her was having full play, she produced poets. Right down into the Victorian era, she went on producing them. Then she took to the stock exchange and an ostentatious way of life, and the supply of poets fell off. If we accept Mr. Swinburne, who does not belong rightfully to this present time, there is not a poet of any parts exercising his function in England today. Furthermore, any bookseller will tell you that the demand for poetry books by new writers has practically ceased to exist. These statements will be called sweeping by a certain school of critics, and I shall be asked to cast my eye round the English nest of singing birds, and to answer and say whether Mr. So-and-so be not a poet, and Mr. So-and-so, and Mr. So-and-so, and Mr. So-and-so. I shall also be asked to say, if I am prepared to deny that of Mr. So-and-so's last volume of verse, three hundred copies were actually sold to the booksellers. For the propounders of such questions, I have one answer. Namely, it may be so. In the meantime, let us do our best to find an English poet who is worth the name, and who is prescriptively entitled to be mentioned in the category which begins with Chaucer and ends with Mr. Swinburne. Shall we try Mr. Rudyard Kipling? Tested by sales and the amount of dust he has managed to kick up, Mr. Kipling should be a poet of parts. He is still young and happily among the living, but it cannot be denied that as a poet he has already outlived his reputation. Two years ago he could set the English-speaking nations humming or reciting whatever he chose to put into meter. Some of his little things looked like lasting. Already the majority of them are forgotten. To the next generation, if he be known at all, he will be known as the author of three pieces, Recessional, the L'Envoi, appended to life's handicap, and Mandalay. What is to become of such verses as the following? Have you heard of the widow at Windsor with a hairy gold crown on her head? She has ships on the foam, she has millions at home, and she pays us poor beggars in red. Ow, oh, poor beggars in red. There's her nick on the cavalry horses, there's her mark on the medical stores, and her troopers you'll find with a fair whim behind that takes us to various wars poor beggars barbarous wars and is to the widow at windsor and is to the stores and the guns the men and the horses that makes up the forces o oh, miss victorier's sons poor beggars victorier's sons at the time of their appearance these lines and the like of them were vastly admired everybody read them most people praised them they were supposed to stir the english blood like a blast of martial trumpets here at length was the poet england had been waiting for there could be no mistake about him he had the authentic voice the incommunicable fire the master touch he had come to stay at the present moment the bulk of his metrical work is just about as dead and forgotten as the coster songs of yesteryear he has not even made a cult 
nobody quotes him nobody believes in him as a poetical master nobody wants to hear any more of him his imitators have all gone back to the imitation of better men if a copy of verses have a flavor of kipling about it nowadays editors drop it as they would drop a hot coal so much for the poet of empire the poet of the people the metrical patron of thomas atkins esq another poet of empire mr w e henley has fared very little better what can i do for england is i believe still in request among the makers of a certain class of anthology but english poetry in the bulk is just the same as if mr henley had never been even the balderdash about my indomitable soul has fallen out of the usus loquende of young men's christian associations and young men's debating societies the song of the sword is sung no longer for england's sake has gone the way of all truculent war poetry and out of hawthorn and lavender perhaps a couple of lyrics remain mr henley attacked burns when burns had been a century dead who will consider it worth while to attack mr henley in say the year two thousand and two possibly the real true english poet who will in due course put on the laurel of mr austin is mr stephen phillips yet mr stephen phillips is a purveyor of metrical notions for the stage and in his last work ulysses i find him writing as follows athene father whose oath in hollow hell is heard whose act is lightning after thunder word a boon a boon that i compassion find for one the most unhappy of mankind zeus how is he named athene ulysses he who planned to take the towered city of troyland a mighty spearsman and a seaman wise a hunter and at need a lord of lies with woven wiles he stole the trojan town which ten years battle could not batter down oft hath he made sweet sacrifice to thee zeus nodding benevolently i mind me of the savory smell athene yet he when all the other captains had won home was whirled about the wilderness of foam for the wind and the wave have driven him evermore mocked by the green of some receding shore yet over wind and wave he had his will blistered and buffeted unbaffled still ever the snare was set ever in vain the lotus island and the siren strain through scylla and charybdis hath he run sleepless plunging to the setting sun who hath so suffered or so far hath sailed so much encountered and so much quailed which is exactly the kind of poetry one requires for the cavern scene of a new year's pantomime possibly again the real true english poet is mr william watson with his tiresome mimicry of wordsworth and his high and dry style of lyrical architecture mr watson is believed to have done great things but his role now appears to be one of austere silence he is what the old writers would have termed a costive poet and if his collected poems are to be the end of him his end will not be long deferred or possibly the one and only poet our england of to-day would wish to boast is mr arthur simons mr simons writes just the kind of poetry one might expect of a versifier who in early youth had loved a cigarette-smoking ballet girl and could never bring himself to repress his passion here is a sample of mr arthur simons at his choicest 
the feverish room and that white bed the tumble skirts upon a chair the novel flung half opened where hat hairpins puffs and paints are spread and you half dressed and half awake your slant eyes strangely watching me and i who watch you drowsily with eyes that having slept not ache this uh, need one dread nay dare one hope will rise a ghost of memory if ever again my handkerchief is scented with white heliotrope no doubt if the english continue to descend the moral avernus at their present rate of speed mr simons will become by sheer process of time the representative poet of the nation it is part of a poet's duty to look into the future and mr simons appears to have taken the next two or three generations of englishmen by the forelock may he have the reward which is his due for the rest they all mean well and they all aim high but one is afraid that nothing will come of them there are francis thompson and lawrence hausman and henry newbolt and lawrence binion and f b manicuts and arthur christopher benson and victor parr amiable performers all but each a standing example of poetical shortcoming perhaps one ought not to mention mr john davidson and mr w b yeats because mr davidson is a scot and mr yeats putatively at any rate an irishman in some respects these twain may be considered the pick of the basket i am constrained to admit however that neither of them has as yet fulfilled his earlier promise so that on the whole england is practically without poets of marked or extraordinary attainments the reason is not far to seek she is losing the breed of noble bloods her greed her luxuriousness her excesses her contempt for all but the material are beginning to find her out her youths who should be fired by the brightest emotions are bidden not to be fools and taught that the whole duty of man is to be washed and combed and financially successful consequently that section of english adolescence which in the nature of things begins with poetry and gladness very speedily throws up the sponge consecration to the muse is no longer thought of among englishmen they cannot be content to be published and take their chance the dismal shibboleth of poetry does not pay wears them all down what is the good of writing verses which bring you neither reputation nor emolument one must live and to live like a gentleman by honest toil and devote one's leisure instead of one's life to poetry is the better part meanwhile england jogs along quite comfortably she can get keats for a shilling and shakespeare for sixpence why should she worry herself for a moment with the new men end of chapter eleven chapter twelve fiction after much patient thinking the english have come to the conclusion that there is but one branch of literary art and that its name is fiction and by fiction the english really mean the six-shilling novel i do not think it too much to say that since the six-shilling novel was first thrust upon our delighted attention it has never brought within its covers six shillings worth of reading the high priest and high priestess who serve to the right and left of the altar of six-shillingism are as every one knows mr hall cain and miss marie corelli each of them wears a golden ephod with a breastplate of jewels arranged to spell out the magic figures one hundred thousand 
all the other priests of the tabernacle look with awe and envy upon these two because the other priests breastplates have hard work to spell out fifty thousand and some of them do not even achieve one thousand five hundred burnt offerings of cain and corelli therefore fill the place with savour a pair of sorrier writers never was on sea or land everybody knows it nobody denies it and nobody seems sad about it the six-shilling novel is an established english institution cain and corelli are its prop and stay and the rest do their best to keep in the running and pick up the minor money-bags the perusal of six-shilling fiction is practically a sort of mania it has seized in its grip the fairest england has to show particularly matrons the younger women and stockbrokers for the englishwoman the daily round would lose its saltness did she not have handy the newest six-shilling novel by mr kane miss corelli or the next literary baller in the market-place there are shops called libraries to which the englishwoman repairs for her supplies of literary pabulum here the six-shilling novel has a great time strapped together in sixes or packed in boxes of dozens it is handed forth to the carriages of its fair devourers and taken right away to its repose in the cultured homes of bayswater and Kensington. from morning till night many englishwomen do little but read this precious stuff what they get out of it amounts in the long run to hysteria and anemia it brings about a general deadening of the mind and a general jaggedness of the emotions coupled with an utter incapacity to take any save an exaggerated view of the facts of life discontent disillusionment ennui boredom ill-temper a sharp tongue and a cynical spirit are other symptoms which the six-shilling novel is prone to evoke the habit is worse than opium or hashish or tea cigarettes it is just the devil and that is all you need say about it the persons employed in the opium traffic are supposed to be very wicked to my mind the persons employed in the fiction traffic are as wicked as wicked can be when the foul disease began first to make its ravages obvious there were not wanting persons who would have checked it and provided remedies for it these persons squeaked somewhat and nothing more has been heard of them so the thing goes on unrestrained and even applauded by press and pulpit alike and the englishwoman has become a confirmed inveterate and incurable fiction reader if a man have an enemy to whom he would do an abiding injury let him persuade that enemy to obtain the six more popular six-shilling novels of the moment and read them through if the man's enemy sticks to his bargain at which however he will probably shy in the middle of the second volume the chances are that he gets up from that reading a broken and spiritless man his brain will be as saggy as a sponge full of treacle and his vision as unreliable as that of the alcoholist who always saw two cabs and invariably got into the one that was not there seriously however what is there about this english fiction or for that matter about scottish fiction that men and women should buy it and devour it to the exclusion of all other literary fare it is ill-written it is not original it is not like life it is not beautiful it is not inspiring it does not touch the profound emotions it means nothing and it ends nowhere 
the reason of its popularity is that it appeals to an indolent habit of mind and as a general rule is calculated to excite the passions and particularly to open up questions which experience has shown to be best left alone in nine cases out of ten where a popular work of fiction is concerned it is always possible to put one's finger on the chapter or passages on which its popularity is based and in nine cases out of ten that chapter or those passages have to do with sexual matters the questions which arise out of the relation of man and woman are no doubt vitally important and most interesting but that they should be discussed in an unscientific irresponsible and catchpenny way by anybody who can trail a pen is something of a scandal if an author can succeed in inventing a sexual situation which could not by any possible chance exist for a moment in real life or if he can put a glow and a gloss on the triteness of love and lust his success as a fictionist is to all intents and purposes assured what is sometimes spoken of as wholesome fiction scarcely exists anyway nobody reads it it is the carefully constructed book about sex that sells and is read such a book need not be flagrant as was once thought to be the case it can be a work of art a thing of veiled suggestion delicate unobjectionable and seemingly meet to be read one has hesitation in asserting that such books ought not to be written or ought not to be circulated it is difficult to justify any attitude of intolerance in such a matter yet the fact remains that the maids and matrons of england together with the men who have the leisure and sufficient lack of brains to read fiction are being stuffed season by season and year by year with about the most undesirable kind of sexual philosophy that could well be placed before them of any Englishwoman of the leisured class above the age of sixteen years, it may be said, as was said of the late Professor Jowett in a different sense, what I don't know isn't knowledge. And the instructor in all cases is a fictionist. If a man took his notion of business or politics or art out of six-shilling novels, he would be set down for a fool." yet most english women get their view of love and the married relation from these extraordinary works and it is taken for granted that nobody is a penny the worse for my own part i should incline to the opinion that the only persons who are a penny not to say six shillings the worse are the english middle and upper classes as a body much has been said in derision of what the english call the kelliard school of fiction kelliard fiction being i need scarcely say a brand of fiction written by scotsmen usually in scotland and sold in the english and the american markets everybody of taste and judgment cheerfully admits that kelliarders are not persons of genius for the delectation of the southerner they have made a scotland of their own the which however is not scotland they have made a scottish sentiment a scottish point of view a scottish humour a scottish pathos and even a scottish dialect which may be reckoned quite doubtful at the same time one looks in vain to the kailyarders for anything that is worse than slobber anything really noxious and dreadful that is to say one might read kailyard forever and a day without coming to great moral grief 
indeed i would point out that on the whole the kailyard system of ethics partakes somewhat of the character of the system of ethics which used to be unfolded in the melodrama of our grandfather's days virtue rewarded vice punished is the moral upshot of it and in any case and let it be as bad and as meretricious and as greatly to be deprecated as one will we must always remember that the kailyard book is a work invented and manufactured not for scotsmen but for the anglo-saxon the englishman and his offshoots some months back a considerable hubbub arose in english literary circles because m jules verne had been saying to an interviewer at amiens of all places in the world that the novel as a form of literary expression was doomed and would gradually die out of popular favour it is safe to say that in the eyes of sundry critics of pretty well every nationality the novel has been doomed any time this last fifty years yet the novel comes up smiling every time since it was reduced in price to six shillings in england it has undoubtedly deteriorated not only as a piece of writing but also in the matter of ethical intention so long as it remains the prey of some of its latter-day exploiters so long will it continue to deteriorate so long as the english mind continues to be feeble and unwholesome and yearn for artificial thrills and undesirable emotions so long will english fiction continue to be of its present decadent quality as the capitalist says it is all a question of supply and demand the great aim of writers of fiction or at any rate of ninety-nine per cent of them is to produce an article that will sell you must turn out what the public want and they will assuredly buy it the knack of hitting the public taste looks easy to acquire and the fictionist strives after it with all his might many are called to make fortunes out of novel writing few are chosen but nobody can examine the work of those few without perceiving that for weal or woe principally for woe they know their business of course it goes without saying that a very considerable amount of fiction is published in england which is just as mild and just as innocuous as tinned milk to this puling variety of fiction however the english do not appear to be very greatly drawn it crops up with great regularity every publishing season it is solemnly reviewed in the critical journals and it even stands shoulder by shoulder with stronger meat in the bookshops but the fact remains that it does not sell to see second edition on it is the rarest occurrence in fine the english will have their fiction spiced and highly spiced or not at all mealy-mouthed writers over-reticent over-blushful over-austere writers they do not want neither have they any admiration for a writer who is plagued with a feeling for style and who may be reckoned an artist in the collocation of words their much-vaunted meredith has never had the sale of a crockett or a berry or a hawking or for that matter of a j k jerome the english have little or no literary taste little or no literary acumen and they expect their fictionists to give them anything and everything save what is edifying end of chapter twelve